We are in the last of the 13 principles. Uh, we've spent a long time trying to understand Rambam's 13 principles of faith. He tells us that this is the framework of our religion. This is what we believe. These are our ideologies. These are the tenets. These are the principles, the foundations of what we believe. 13 of them. And we're up to number 13, and that is the concept of Trias Amesim, the resurrection of the dead. And of course, this whole subject is following the Rambam. He was the first to codify these beliefs, these ideals as principles. And he is, of course, the first source that we cover, and he's the guiding light to us. Over the course of our studies, we've lamented the dearth of sources about resurrection. It seems like it's not discussed in a way that would satisfy us. Like, why is there not more discussion? Why is there not more clarification? Why is it so murky? Why is the subject so opaque? Well, it turns out that Rambam himself wrote a letter, wrote a treatise, wrote an epistle on resurrection. Ma'amar Trias Hamesim, the letter or the epistle on resurrection. In the past, we cited a few citations from it. I got a chance to read it over Shabbos. I found it to be very interesting. It's a bit sprawling. It addresses all sorts of uh, interesting elements of resurrection, but also other related subjects. And Ramam wrote this as a response. It, there was a response. He had a problem because people were misunderstanding him and misinterpreting him. And in order to dispel misunderstanding and misinterpretation of Ramam's own writings, he wrote this very long epistle about resurrection. And he's, he's presenting arguments. And I think it's, it's fascinating from, from all sorts of angles. Because it's, it's Ramam bringing you behind the scenes. He's explaining why he did things, what were his calculations, what were some of the elements behind his decision making, and what, what are the kind of the, the, the long form version of his arguments that he wrote very succinctly in his other writings. He's dealing with a problem. There, there are heretics, maybe unwitting heretics, not malicious heretics, but people that misunderstood Rambam's writings, and he's trying to correct the record. So I found it to be very interesting. It is very long and it does get a little technical and a little intricate. But I thought that if we're going to do this properly, if we're going to study the 13 principles and especially principle number 13, it would be a good idea to go through this epistle. And now I'm, I, I made a decision to omit some parts of it where it gets very technical. And again, it is very long. But I found it to be very interesting, but also relevant. And it touches on all sorts of subjects that are pertinent to our pursuit, both subjects that we already covered and those still on the docket. And therefore, what I wanted to do today is to go through Rambam's Rambam's epistle on resurrection and see what we can learn from this very long and very interesting, again, the actual work of Rambam, his response to those who misunderstood what he wrote with relation to resurrection. 
Now, I will say, this was written in Arabic, and then it was translated contemporaneously. In modern times, so in the last century, there was a second considered to be more authoritative translation. So there's a little bit of a gap here. We have Arabic to Hebrew. I went through two versions of the Hebrew. And of course, we're going to try to convey it in English. So there's a little bit of, of distance here, just so you know. And I'll tell you that in the book that I have, with a more modern and supposedly more accurate and authoritative translation, like there's all sorts of footnotes about the precise translation of of all these Arabic words. And he's like, you know, the original translator said this, but the actual Arabic word actually means this. So just so you know, have more context of of where, where we're coming from. Okay, so the Ram starts off with an iconic line. He says, sometimes people are trying to say something. And they want it to be clear, and they want it to be understood, and they want to clarify it and make it crystal clear, and they want to remove all doubt. But it's still possible, even though that is the intention of the author, it's possible for those words to be twisted and to be presented in a way that's the exact opposite of the intent of the author. The author wants one thing, and the author is striving to convey that one thing. And someone who is, he calls them foolish, someone is not, their, 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 their mind is not sufficiently strong enough, they will misinterpret it. And they'll end up saying the exact opposite of what the original author wanted to do. And he says it's something that even happened to God. That's how he starts off. Even when Hashem wants to clarify something, and he makes it so clear. And it's it's so obvious. Nevertheless, someone can come and pervert it and corrupt it and to interpret it in the opposite way that Hashem intended. This happened to God, says Rambam. What did he write? Shema Israel, listen, hear, O Israel. Hashem Elokeinu. Hashem Echad. Hashem, God is our God. Hashem is one. Does it get any clearer than that? God is one. It's incontrovertible. There's no room for misinterpretation, right? Well, some heretics come and say, well, no, this verse actually proves that God is not one. God is three. Because it's Hashem, Elokeinu, Hashem. The verse says God, Hashem, Elokeinu, our God, Hashem Echad. Oh, this is proof, say the heretics, that there's actually three, but it's one. So you see an example. This is how he starts off. You see an example, and he obviously says, obviously, heaven forfend to, to believe that. We don't believe that at all, of course. But if it happened to Hashem, certainly our words can be misinterpreted. And he says, it happened to me. Ramam is going to reference a lot of his own writings in this letter, and to talk about how they were all, they were misunderstood by some people. We, says Rambam, we wanted to explain the principles of Torah. And we wanted to clarify things. And we focused, and we made a tremendous effort to explicate and to organize 
and to codify the principles of Torah. There were some matters that people were ignoring. There were principles of Torah that people didn't know and, and, and completely just, no one talked about it and it was neglected. And through our efforts, doubt arose in a manner that was universally agreed upon. Meaning what I'm saying here is that there was something that really everyone agreed. And when I clarified it, some people misunderstood me and corrupted what I had intended. And thus, now he's coming in this letter to correct the record. Now, it's, there's so many different interesting parts about this letter. Um, a lot of it is it, he's referencing his own decisions, why he did what he did, what was his intention, and what was his contribution, what, what, what was he trying to achieve, what was his motivation to do what he did. So he says, he says, I wrote my work not because I wanted reward or honor. I did it for the sake of heaven. And my intention was to guide and to clarify and to make sure that everyone understood. And I assembled from all across the vast sea of Torah literature, I assembled everything into one place. And I thought it was appropriate, says Rambam, to include in my works, to include the foundational tenets of our religion. You can't cover everything and just neglect the matters that are foundational to Torah. And then he says, he says that, he, he gives an anecdote. He says there was a supposed scholar, someone who considered themselves to be a scholar of Israel. And he would engage in Torah argumentation as if he was, a, you know, a real sage. And since he was young, he was in the academy. And someone like that, you imagine that the basics of our religion, they should know, right? If someone's a sage already, they should know the basics. But I encountered this person, I met this person, and he wasn't sure. He wasn't sure. Is, is God corporeal? Is he physical? Does he have eyes and hands and legs and a stomach? Because after all, Verses talk about God's eyes and God's ears. Well, maybe God is physical. That is what this person that Ramam is referencing, he doesn't tell us who it is. I met this person. It's crazy to think that there was a, there's a sage who doesn't know the most basic elementary definitions of God. That's something that, that maybe needs to be addressed. And then I, I, I met others that that they they weren't even doubting it. They concluded, they determined that God must have a body. Not only that, they said, well, if you reject God's corporeality, well, then you're a heretic. And they said, well, look at the verse. The verse says that God has eyes and the hands of God. God took out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. How could you say otherwise? And the Roman says, well, and there's another group of people, I didn't meet them, but I heard about them, that they also, they also had 
gross misunderstandings about the basic foundations of our faith. And because I heard about these people and I knew about these people and these supposed the sages who were fools, he calls them, and they're more ignorant than animals. That's what he says. He's like the animals. At least they don't, they don't they don't make mistakes. You know they don't they don't say God is a body. If someone is a sage, they're worse than an animal because their opinion is just more inaccurate than that of an animal. And therefore, Rama made a decision of how he was going to present these matters. He, what he's basically saying over here is that if someone is a sage and someone has a foothold in Torah, they're actually more liable to make mistakes. They're more liable, they're more prone to make egregious errors because after all, they, they think they're a sage. Maybe they, they do have some aptitude, but that actually could lead them down the wrong path. If someone is ignorant, they say, okay, just tell me what it is. I'll believe it. Okay, the Raman tells it and cl- clarifies it for you. You're good. But if you try to explain it and you're kind of dealing with the scholarly class, so to speak, then there's room for corruption. And therefore, says Rambam, I realized that you need to present the principles of faith not in a form of study and to bring the proofs and to bring the arguments and to present the matters, not to engage on that level, on the on the didactic level, but instead to just present it as dogma. So there's no room for misinterpretation and misunderstanding. And he explains the the scholars to actually engage with all these foundational principles of faith. On a scholarly level, there's all sorts of disciplines that go into it. Not only do you have to be a master of all of Torah, which very, very few people are. Raman was an unfathomable master of all of Torah. But then he says there's other disciplines that you need to know. And most people are ignorant about those disciplines. So if people are doing this on their own, they're going to end up in a bad place. And therefore, I just chose to instead not focus on the scholars, to focus on the masses and just present the truth as it is. Again, the Rambam is bringing us into his talk. I find this just fascinating. I know it's a, it's a little bit off topic for what we're trying to do here, but I find it very interesting that the Rambam is taking us behind the scenes of what his calculations were for what he when he wrote his original works that, as we shall see, were misinterpreted. And he starts to list all the different places where he wrote about foundations of faith. You know, we've been quoting Rambam throughout our studies. This is, you know, we've had more than 70 episodes about the principles of faith, the 13 of them. And we're citing all sorts of places and we're citing many different places in Rambam himself. In his introduction to his commentary to Mishnah, so of course, Rambam wrote so many works. One of them is his commentary on Mishnah. He wrote a complete commentary on all 63 books on Mishnah, the first to ever do that. And there's a very long introduction that he gives to his commentary on Mishnah. It's, it's so long we could spend the whole semester studying it. Maybe we will. Maybe we will. Once we finish 13 principles, this is a very good place to go. And there he lays out 
several major principles about the notion of, of prophecy and the transmission of the Torah and the history of oral Torah and what every rabbi needs to know about this. So that's one area where he addressed the principles of faith. And then in his commentary to the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin, he talks about the concept of reward and punishment and the various different opinions about what is reward for mitzvahs and what is what is punishment for sins. And he spoke all about Olam Abba. And then he delineates in that commentary the 13 principles. And by the way, that's another very good place that we could read that Ramam's treatise on reward and punishment featured in his introduction to his commentary on Mishnah of the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin. And also, in our great work, says Rambam, that we call Mishnah Torah, which is otherwise called Yad HaZaka, Rambam's 14-book magnum opus, where he incorporates all of oral Torah into one set of books. In there, he spoke all about Olabah as well. And he explains that the reason why he made such an emphasis on the subject of Olabah is because he felt it was neglected. And people were talking about all sorts of other things, but they missed the concept of Olabah. And people would not emphasize it, not study it, and they were focused on other things. And the subject matter of Olam Abba, which is the ultimate reward, it was neglected. And that's why I spent so much time there explicating and clarifying what Olam Abba is and how it all works. Yeah, it's well, if Olam Abba is the ultimate venue of reward and punishment, it's appropriate to explain it. So again, he's talking about the, this epistle is really about resurrection, but he's giving us his background, his history, his the backstory of why he wrote what he wrote and how he wrote it. And then he's going to explain how people misinterpret it, and then he's going to clarify the record. Then he's going to add some more stuff that are uh, very interesting. So he lays out for us, this is something that we did quote. He says that there's a difference between resurrection and Olamaba. Resurrection it is a foundational belief. It's one of the 13 principles of faith that you have to believe in it in order to have a part in the religion of Moshe, the religion of the Torah brought to us by Moshe. But it's not the ultimate venue of reward. That is Olam Abba. So resurrection is imperative. It's a principle, but it's not the goal. And then he says something. I found this to be so interesting. If you look at in the laws of repentance. So in Mishnah Torah, laws of repentance, Rama makes a list of 24 people, 24 sinners, that lose Olmaba. means that their sins are so egregious that they get booted from ultimate reward. And he says, why did I write that there's 24 of them? You look at it, he says, there's 24 people that lose Olmaba. And they bunches them into different groups. Like, why did I write 24? I could have just 
list of the people. So he says something, just, you, what do you, I wouldn't think of this. He says, you know, the Ramam lived 1135 to 1204. So he's in the 12th century. This is way before the printing press. So it's all copied by hand. So Ramam was worried, this is what Ramam himself says, that maybe someone who's a scribe, a copyist, who's copying the list of 24, will omit one, maybe by mistake or maybe out of malice. And no one will know. No one will know because, well, okay, it says 23, it says 22, it says 20. So in order to prevent that, Ram says there's 24 of them. And then he lists the 24, so that way there's no way for the, or it's, it's, a, it's an added ordinance, an added safety measure to ensure that no, no such uh, mistakes happen in the copying of his writings. So again, the Ram's giving us his, he, he's delineating for us the various places where he spoke about these principles. And then he proceeds to talk about the existence of a body in Olamaba. Okay, now I, I will say, this is not something we really spoke about yet. But there's a lot of literature about this particular question. Resurrection is body and soul coming together. And we always said that there's two types of resurrection. There's resurrection in the times of Messiah and there's resurrection in the times of the run-up to Olam Abba. We always said the run-up to Olam Abba. Resurrection is, is the merging, the fusing, the returning of soul and body together. So now the human that comes back alive is a body and a soul. What happens in Olam Abba itself? Is the person still a body and soul or not? There is a lot of literature about this, a lot of debate. And Ramam takes a definitive stance in this question that in Olmaba, there is no body. And he repeats this a few times in the essay, in the epistle. And he brings proofs. And I'll tell you, it's a very controversial opinion because there are contemporaries of Ramu who disagree with him on this. And Ramu brings proofs and they respond to these proofs. So there are essays on either side. It's like a, a very vibrant debate about this question. So again, so once he's talking about Olamaba and resurrection, he's going to talk about the fact that something has to change between resurrection and Olamaba. Because resurrection is merging of body and soul together. And resurrection happens before Omaba. He says that explicitly. So resurrection and then Omaba. But if resurrection is merging of body and soul together, well, at some point, the body has to go away because Omaba, well, that is a time where there is no body. So it's not exactly clear what the handoff is, what the handshake is, what the crossover is between resurrection and Olamaba. That's a, a question we hope to delve into, please God, in the future. But Ramam is insistent that in Olamaba, there is no physical, corporeal reality. 
and he cites proofs to this. The first thing he says that the Talmud says that Omaba, there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no intercourse. Well, if there's no physical functions, why would you have a physical body? It's impossible to say that someone would have a body that's useless. The body, well, parts of the body are for eating. Well, if there's no eating, why do you have the parts of the body that are for eating? And parts of the bodies are for walking. And if there's no walking, why do you need to have legs? And parts of the body are for reproduction. If there's no reproduction, well, then why would you have those parts of the body? If every part of the body does a function, and that function is not featured in Olam Abba, it's impossible to say that you would have the hardware without their use case. And don't argue, says Rambam, that, well, Moshe, he went 40 days without eating and drinking, and he did that three times. So we see that it's possible to have a body and to not use it. He says, no, that's not a proof. Because Moshe and Elijah, says Rambam, their hardware was not for naught. Because before, before their elevation, they were humans like everyone else. And afterwards, they were also humans like everyone else. And if Moshe goes up to heaven, he has a body, okay, but he's going to come back down from heaven and resume living like a human. And therefore, the functions of the body will come back. And therefore, it's even though there's a, a point in between of a miraculous existence, that temporary miraculous existence where he's not deploying the functions of the body, that's okay for him to harbor that body because he'll need it later on. Whereas, Omaba, that is a permanent state. And that is an eternal state. And if forever and ever, so again, not one year, not a hundred years, not a million years, forever, someone's going to be in Oma, not eating and not drinking, it doesn't make sense that they would have the hardware to eat and to drink and to procreate and to walk, etc. Olamaba, it's an eternal world. There's no way that a person will bring with them, says Rambam, their vestigial organs, these vehicles of physicality with them in Olamaba. The body will not be there, says Rambam, to do actions and functions that the soul does not need in Olamaba. And you cannot say, says Rambam, that God made something or would make something extraneous, purposeless. There's no way to Swallow, says Rambam. The idea that God would have the human exist as a body in Olamaba when the body has no function there. That's Rambam's argument, and he presents it twice in the essay. And then he explains, and this is also interesting, because the Rambam is not only presenting all these very interesting things, he's also getting into the psychology of why people misunderstood it and why it's hard for people to understand it. People, the masses, they look at physical reality as being real. And that's their frames of reference. And if they want to ascribe value and and prominence and permanence 
to something, they equate it with physicality. The whole idea of a bodiless existence, it's foreign to people who are so immersed in the notions of physicality and the material world. And this is why, says Rama, people think that God is a body because they don't have the spiritual frames of reference. But the truth is, is that the exact opposite is, is true. Physicality does not contribute towards something being real or lasting or permanent or powerful. The more physical something is, the more ephemeral it is, the less real it is, the less permanent and prominent and lasting and powerful it is. And the more changing it is, and the more it's subject to erosion and entropy. And this is why, says Rambam, we believe that angels don't have a body. And just as angels, these spiritual beings, they don't have a body, humans, in all Maba, says Rambam, will be bodiless. And says Rambam, he, he concedes a point here. Let's say there's someone who doesn't want to believe this. Someone makes a big fuss over this. It says, well, angels have a body. And I'll bring you a proof. Because after all, when Abraham served the angels, they ate. So angels have a body. And similarly, people in Olam they'll have a body as well. Says the Rambam, that is a mistake that's tolerable. It's okay to be wrong here. We're not going to make a big deal about it. We're not going to say someone like that's a heretic. Okay, he's wrong. That's fine. No big deal. A big deal, but not a huge deal. And then he says, if only, I, I wish all the heretics were just heretics in this matter. This is a tolerable heresy. But an intolerable heresy is to ascribe corporeality to God. That is totally beyond the pale. And that is totally unacceptable. Okay, so he's giving us, this is all background of the notion of principles and why he wrote it and the difference between Olam Abba and resurrection and the notion of resurrection being merging of body and soul together, but Olam Abba is just the existence of a soul as a soul without a body. He then proceeds to talk about the misinterpretation that happened with his writings. And he says there was a whole series of misinterpretations. There was a student from Damascus who read Rambam's works and said there's no resurrection. And then people said to him, how do you know that? He says, well, Rambam says that. Because Rambam says that the goal of the ultimate reward is Olam Abba. And in Olam Abba, there's no body. So it must be there's no, re- there's no resurrection. Because the resurrection is it's all about putting the body back with the soul. That was the misinterpretation of the Damascene student. And when the people argue with him, no, we have all these proofs that there is resurrection. He says, no. He rebuffed that by saying, no, 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 those are all 
metaphorical. It's not literal. So this is the first little misinterpretation the Ramam heard about. Someone used the Ramam's own words to say there's no resurrection. And the Ramam says, you know, when he when I heard that, I said, okay, this is something we can ignore. It's such a minority. No one's foolish enough to follow that guy, right? There's no way someone's foolish enough to follow that guy. Then, says Ramam, in the year 4949, so in our terms, that's 1188. So Ramam's in his 50s. Then something else happened. I got a letter from the land of Yemen. And people there determined, based upon Ramam's own writings, that there is no resurrection. Death, in the opinion of those people in Yemen, death is final. And their proof was again from the Rambam. Rambam says that, well, the ultimate reward is all about, all about there's no body. So they just took the added step to say, well, resurrection must not be true. And again, when they were shown sources otherwise, the clear sources, they said, well, that's a metaphor. That's not literal. And we responded that Olam comes after resurrection, but res- res- resurrection is real. So the Ram was saying, I addressed that question. I sent back a letter and I said, no, no, you're misunderstanding. Resurrection is true. Olam is true. Resurrection is merging body and soul together. Olam is the soul without the body. But first comes resurrection and it's real and it's foundation of the Torah. And only then comes Olam And Ram says, and then I, th- I thought the subject matter was over. I thought, okay, we responded, we're good. And then Rome says, I got a letter from Baghdad. So he's got a letter from Damascus, Damascus, and he's got a letter from Yemen, and now one from Baghdad. And there, a famous scholar misinterpreted Rambam and made all sorts of terrible errors regarding the subject of resurrection. So, there's, there's multiple times that Ram is being misinterpreted, misunderstood, misportrayed, misrepresented. He says, okay, I'm, I'm here now to clarify and to remove all the mistakes that people have in my writings. And that's like kind of his introduction. Like what he wrote, why he wrote it, some of the things that he wrote, how they were misunderstood. And now he's coming to clarify and to correct the record. And he stresses that he's intending simply to clarify what he already wrote, not to add upon it. He says, people who are prone to misunderstand what I wrote, I want to just clarify it for them so that they understand it, but I'm not adding something new. In the end, he will actually, in fact, add a few new points. He says, what is resurrection? Resurrection that's repeated in the prayers... It's found in the literature, it's found in the Talmud, it's found in the Midrash. Resurrection is the return of the soul to the body after they are separated. Body and soul separate at death. And at some point, they will reunite. And that is the idea of resurrection. And Rambam clarifies, there is no 
legitimate opposition to this idea in our religion. And it's prohibited to listen, to hearken to anyone who challenges this. And he cites the verse in Daniel that we spoke about already a few times. Chapter 12, verse 2, the verse says clearly, Many of those who are sleeping in the dust will get up. These for eternal life and these for eternal ignominy. And Ram says clearly, if you are saying that I, that the Rambam, that I say that resurrection, that resurrection is a metaphor, you are lying. You're lying. Because no, it's false. I never said it. I did say that those who are resurrected, they will live and will live long lives and will die. And then afterwards, there is Olamaba, which is the bodiless life. But I never said that there is no resurrection. And if you portray my position, you are lying. And he adds, a little later on he writes, and you will have to face a judgment in heaven for misinterpreting what I'm saying. And once again, he explains his position that after resurrection, after the person once again dies, after there is some process by which there's Olam Abba. He says it's a bodyless life. And it can't be that you have a body that is useless and functionless. And again, he explains why people made that mistake. And then again, he says it's not the worst mistake in the world. It's a tolerable mistake. And then he says, well, if people misunderstand us, you know, we intend our book. He, he writes a beautiful line. He says, we're doing our work and we're investing so much time and effort into these works to say the truth. And even if there's only one person of the thousand fools, there's one person that understands what we're trying to say, it's worth the work. So again, he's laying out his position. He's trying, he's repeating it again and again to reinforce his point. And he says clearly, the intolerable position is to reject resurrection completely. If someone wants to say, well, in Olam Abba, you have a body, that's a tolerable mistake. It's okay. Listen, <laughs> there are lots of fools. We could live with that. But what we cannot live is a repudiation of a major principle of our religion. And Rambam explains this repudiation to reject resurrection, that amounts to a repudiation of all miracles. And that's total heresy. And that is the abandonment of the religion, of the faith. And this is why, says Rambam, resurrection is one of the principles. Again, we talked about this uh, a few episodes ago. That Ramam equates the notion of resurrection with a miracle. And therefore, the reason why resurrection is a principle, because it's the acceptance of the, of the concept of miracles and the Almighty having all the control to change the way things are. The way things are now is that you live and hopefully live a long life, but you begin to suffer from 
from entropy and eventually you die. And then you don't live anymore. That's the way the course of nature is. But of course, the course of nature does not have to be like that if God controls everything. And that's the idea of a miracle. The idea of resurrection, it's the embodiment of the notion that God controls everything and has complete liberty to do whatever he wants. And if he tells us that he will resurrect the dead, even though it completely violates our understanding of the laws of physics, the laws of nature, we accept it and we thereby accept the concept of miracles and thus we maintain our belief that the Almighty is really in charge. And again, he warns those who contort and misinterpret his words that they will have to pay for it. And he says a powerful point. Part of the reason why this mistake happened, why so many people mis- misinterpreted Rambam is because he didn't he didn't speak about it at length. He spoke about al at length, but he did not speak about the resurrection at length. And that left a window for people to misinterpret it. And he says, he says, there is a a logical flaw in that mistake. People think, people think that if you repeat something again and again, it makes it more true. That's a fallacy. If you say something once, that's sufficient. If you say that resurrection happens, that's sufficient. The only way someone can not be persuaded because it only spoke about it very briefly, it's only if they have weak minds and therefore they equate the repetition of something with the reinforcement of its veracity. Rabbam has a beautiful line. He says that if I could have, if I could have condensed everything I wanted to say into one line, into one book, into, you know, one volume, I would have done it. I only wrote what needed to be said. And if you just need to say that resurrection is true and it happens, that's, that's all you need to say. There's no, no, no reason to add more to it. But people of weak intelligence, they say, well, you only spoke about it very briefly. Maybe there's room for maybe rejecting it. Maybe being creative in, in rejecting it. And he gives the example that he said at the beginning. God's oneness. It says it once in the Torah. And that is sufficient. Similarly, if we see one citation in the prophet that incontrovertibly declares that resurrection will happen, the verse in Daniel, that is sufficient. That's enough. That's all you need. If this verse proves conclusively that resurrection happens, the whole discussion of, well, what's, what's literal and what's metaphorical and all that could go out the window. Because even if we assume that every other reference to resurrection is metaphorical, the fact that we have one that is impossible to say that it is metaphorical, it must be literal, that should prove conclusively that resurrection, literal resurrection, is true. Ramam then proceeds to pinpoint several places in his writings where he was misinterpreted. For example, Ramam wrote with relation to Messiah that Messiah does not need to resurrect the dead. And some people of weak 
mind misinterpreted this as saying that there's no resurrection. But of course, that's not what he was trying to say. His only point, Ramam says, my only point was that Messiah does not need to resurrect the dead or to split the seed to prove his veracity. But that doesn't mean that God won't resurrect the dead. The bottom line, which is again a bottom line that he will repeat in all of my writings, there is no repudiation of resurrection. Only a novice student would make that mistake. And then he talks about another example where people misunderstood him. Rambam cites the verse in Isaiah that the wolf and lamb will lie peaceably together. And Rambam says this is it's a metaphor. Well, if Rambam is accepting the notion of metaphors, well, maybe other things are metaphors. The people of uh, the people who are questioning Rama's position in this may say. So the first thing Rama says, well, this is not just me who says that the wolf and lamb verse may be a metaphor. He cites others who did that as well. And then he says, when we say that the wolf and lamb living together peaceably, when we say that's a metaphor, that's not a definitive declaration. Maybe it's not a metaphor. Maybe it is literal. After all, we don't have a prophecy declaring whether or not that verse, that prophecy is literal or metaphorical. And we don't have a tradition either. So why did I write that it's metaphorical when it could just as easily be literal? Again, I know that these we're getting big time into the weeds here. But the Ramam took the time to write this very, very long and, and rigorous argument or, or presentation on the subject of resurrection. And if we want to understand this, I think it's it's very helpful for us to go through this. And, I, and this, every little piece is its own idea. So there really isn't like one larger principle that he's trying to lay aside for the reinforcement and the complete dispelling of the false notion that Ramam himself argued that resurrection is not true. So why? So Ram says, okay, if the wolf and lamb verse can be interpreted two ways, either as a metaphor or as literal, why did I choose to interpret it as a metaphor? Says the Ram, I will explain it to you. There is a difference between the scholars and the masses. The masses, they love the idea of miracles. They love the idea of departures from the natural course of events. In matters of past and present and future, if they can interpret something as miraculous, they would. But Ramam says, we strive to understand things as much as possible without resorting to the miraculous. Unless it is explicitly told to us that it is a miracle, we'll say, well, why do we have to understand that? Maybe it's within the parameters of nature. And therefore, says Ramam, I could very easily have said that the the wolf and lamb verse is literal, but it's not a miracle. It's not a miracle. How so? He says that in the times of Messiah, there's going to be such abundance that even the animals will be less violent. 
Suppose there's just so much food. There's enough food for everyone and everything. The animals will be less violent. And he cites Aristotle. Aristotle says or wrote that animals in Egypt are less dangerous because there's such an abundance of food in Egypt, as there always was. And therefore, you could have a literal interpretation that's also not a departure from a miracle. Says Rambam, when I say that the wolf and lamb, that does not necessarily mean it's a miracle, it could still be literal and not be a miracle. And he says, well, if if it is a miracle, it's possible that it's only on Temple Mount. And we have a precedent for that. The miracles happen on Temple Mount. There were 10 ever-present miracles in the temple. And in Jerusalem, we're told that a, a snake or a scorpion never killed a person. And therefore, it's possible that there was a miracle and that was limited to, or there will be a miracle, but that's limited to Jerusalem. But the bottom line, says the Rambam, these matters, whether or not the verse about the wolf and lamb is a metaphor or is it literal, is it a miracle, it's not so important. It's not a foundation of Torah. We have to wait and see. Messiah will come and we'll see if the wolf and lamb become chums and buddies. We'll see what's literal. We'll see what is a metaphor. But resurrection, that is literal and that is a miracle. And Ramam explains why people made the mistake specifically in resurrection. We spoke so much about Alamaba, but so little about resurrection. And we said simply that it's a foundation of Torah. And we don't want to write so much. We don't want to have tons of books. We don't want to have big books. We just want to have accurate books with nothing extra in them. So we did not waste so much time talking about things that are not beneficial. So we just said, resurrection is true and that's it. It's a principle of Torah. And if you just elaborate upon it, it's not beneficial unless you're clarifying something. Something that you need to prove you want to clarify it. But a miracle, what's a miracle? It's God changing the way the world works. Talking about it a lot won't help because you're not explaining something that you need to understand. You're just saying, well, this is a miracle that God will do. And therefore, you don't gain anything, says Rambam, by talking about it a lot. The only way to really understand a miracle is either you see it yourself or you have a tradition from someone who did witness it themselves. And therefore, all of above, which is not a miracle, says Rambam, the idea of a soul existing, the soul could be eternal. What's the problem with that? Just like a, a soul, a, 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 an angel can exist, no problem. That's something that is not a miracle, and we need to explain it. But something which is a miracle, and there's no way to really explain it in a logical fashion, a way that fits our understanding of the world today, we simply need to believe it. So I was very brief in my covering of this subject. So what Ram is doing over here is he's explaining the mistake, and he's showing where people made the mistake, and he's clarifying his position. And the bottom line, he says very, very, very clearly is that resurrection is legit. And anyone who questions that or cites Ramam as a proof against that is misinterpreting and misportraying 
him. And then he says, okay, now I've clarified my position, but I'm writing so much about these subjects. I'm gonna, I'm gonna add some new things as well. And he says, first thing I want to do is to, is to clarify the verses that seem to oppose the notion of resurrection. So he cites some verses in Job. The verse says, in Job 14, 14, If a person dies, will they live? That seems to imply there's no resurrection. Of course, another verse that just as a, a cloud disperses and disappears, so too someone who dies and descends down to the depths, they won't ascend. The verse says clearly, this is again Job, chapter 7, verse 9, people die, they're not going to come back. Goes a verse in Isaiah that implies that death is permanent. How do we understand these verses? Why are there verses that seem to indicate that maybe there is no resurrection? Now he clarifies, it's not really such a harsh question because those verses can be understood literally or metaphorically. And maybe if we have no proof either way, you don't really have a question. And the only verse that is incontrovertibly literal is the one in Daniel. But still, he has a question. Why are the verse, why are the prophets in the verses, why are they so misleading? Very interesting question. Second question is why was the Torah not more explicit about resurrection? The Torah, of course, there are some hints in the Talmud goes through, belabors the question of what are the pieces of evidence of resurrection in the Torah. And it brings proofs from, from Aaron will come back and the forefathers will come back, etc. It brings like 15 proofs. Why is the Torah not more explicit about it? It could say a verse that simply solves the problem. In the future, God will take those who are dead and buried in the ground and bring them back to life. Just like the verse in Daniel says it. Just say in the Torah and solve everyone's problem. Two questions the Rambam is going to end off his epistle with. So the first thing he says about the first question is, you know, why are the prophets seeming to mislead us about resurrection? He says something unbelievable. He says, the prophets are focusing on the most common realities which are confined by nature. There, there's a process of nature. People live... And hopefully they're productive in their lifetimes. They get old and they die and they don't come back. That is an accurate description of reality. Of course, the soul, it's a different subject. The soul is alive and it's eternal, a separate subject. But the body is dead, dead, dead. And that is a true statement. You know what else is a true statement? The statement of Moshe. When Moshe tells the nation, you see this rock? Can water come out of rock? Not possible. Can have water come out of a rock? Job says, well, a man who's, who's dead, can they live? It's not possible. Those are both accurate statements. In our world, you could bash a rock a trillion times, you will not get water out of it. And that's accurate. In our world, under the current operating guidelines. Someone who's dead, they're not coming back alive. And they're both true. But that does not mean 
that the rules of our world cannot be changed. A miracle can come and change that. And just as the miracle came and emitted water from the rock, after Moses said, well, water can't come out of a rock, so too a miracle will happen and will bring the dead back alive after Job said the dead won't come back alive. He says another example. The verse in Jeremiah chapter 13 says that, well, people cannot change their skin color. Well, what happened to Moshe? He stuck his hand into his garment and it came out and it was a different color. Why? It's a miracle. So the fact that a prophet is speaking about a world in a, in a modality, in a paradigm of nature, that does not mean that that completely precludes a different set of governing realities to be implemented by God. Water come out of the rock and Moshe's skin color can change miraculously and inanimate matter can come alive when Aaron throws a staff in the ground and it turns into a snake. You could say that a staff is a staff is a staff. A stick is a stick is a stick. It won't change. It will not turn into a stick. That's accurate. And a prophet could say that. Yet a miracle is a change in the world. It's a new reality. And the fact that the new reality is feasible does not cause any problem with the prophet saying that that in a different, in the, in the standard reality is infeasible. Will not happen. So water cannot come out of a rock and staffs cannot turn into serpents and dead cannot come alive. All these are true unless a miracle happens. Miracle happens, everything changes. And that's why the prophets can't speak all about people being dead permanently. It's accurate. Outside of a miracle, it is in fact accurate. Ramam tells us there are only two grounds to deny resurrection. Number one, you say it violates nature. That's true. But nature can be violated with a miracle. Number two, you could say it's not featured in the prophets. And while it's not featured in much of the prophets, it is, in fact, featured in some, primarily in Daniel, and that is sufficient. And you know what? If someone denies miracles, well, then what do they do about manna? What do they do about the, the stick turning into a snake or the sign of revelation or the pillar of fire or the clouds of glory? In effect, if someone questions the notion of miracles, they're saying what the Greeks said, and that is the world is eternal and thus the laws of physics are completely unchangeable even by anything outside of this world. We call that heresy. We call that the notion of an eternal world. We don't believe in that. We believe that God created the world and thus the world is new. And God maintains the levers of control of the world and can alter them at will. So if someone says that God cannot resurrect the dead, that of course is a repudiation of our faith, a repudiation of the world being new, being created by God, and thus it's a repudiation of everything. And again, regarding problem number two, the prophets don't talk about it. Well, one, one, one comment to the prophets, that is sufficient. So that's, Rome says, at the end of my whole essay, my whole epistle, I'll, I'll add some new stuff. And the new stuff he's adding is, number one, why the prophets didn't speak about it? Well, he explains. The prophets are speaking about the most common 
reality, and that's true, just as the most common reality is that water does not come out of a rock, and that does not preclude a miracle from happening. And question number two is the question he's going to address right now, and that is why is it not featured more prominently in the Torah? Why doesn't the Torah just spell it out? And he gives a very interesting and very counterintuitive answer. People need to be ready to hear about a given miracle. A miracle, it shakes up a person's reality. We're expecting things to go in a certain way. We have a certain expectation of how things ought to be. And miracles violate that. Miracles shake the box. They upend our equilibrium. People have to be ready to hear, to be acculturated, to be able to hear a better given miracle. Resurrection is a miracle. And people need to be ready to hear about it. And he says, when the, when the Torah starts off, the Jews were idolaters. They were non-believers. And that's why when, when Moshe starts doing his miracles, he has to overcome the fact that they think he's a sorcerer. They say, sorcery? We know sorcery. That exists. The Egyptians are all experts at it. So he has to change the, the perspective, the worldview. Then this is not sorcery. This is something else. People can't believe the idea that a human can speak to God. They have to slowly be acculturated to changing their perspective, to adopting an entirely new way of seeing the world. God, so to speak, breaking the news to them slowly. And for that reason, he didn't want to tell them about the resurrection until they were ready to hear about it. Resurrection is, is it's such a miracle. People really have to be ready to hear about it. And he beats an example. He says, listen, the, the Jews left Egypt and the verse tells us they took a circuitous route. Why? Because there was a fear, a concern that they may want to hightail back to Egypt. God didn't want to overbear them. He didn't want to smother them. He wanted to make sure that they're ready. And therefore he says, let, 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 let's not give them more than they can handle. Ramam cites another verse at the end of the Torah. Moshe tells the nation that I'm going to tell you things that you were not ready to hear yet. You didn't have the heart to understand, the eyes to see, the ears to hear until today. This is evidence that the nation, they, they were brought closer and closer to an idea that they weren't ready to hear initially. Had the people been told about resurrection earlier, it would have terrified them. It would have been too much too fast. And there's another risk. They would have become negligent in mitzvos. Oh, resurrection, you know, a hundred years from now, we'll deal with it then. And that's why the reward and punishment in the Torah is mostly about this world. You want rain? You want prosperity? You want security? You want your kids to live long? You want your animals to flourish? You want your cities to be defended? Those are things that really speak to, to us. So yes, resurrection, Olam Abba as well, it's hinted to. 
but it's not explicit. Now, just very interesting, at the end, Rambam proceeds to talk about different types of miracles. There are two types of miracles, says Rambam. Again, this is pertinent to our discussion because resurrection is a miracle. And it's a, it's, it's the greatest miracle of them all. It's the one we're told about the last. We have to be really be ready and acculturated for the notion of a different system of, of existence. There's two types of miracles. There are miracles that completely violate the rules of nature. They're completely supernatural. And then there are miracles that are natural. Things that can happen. Locusts in Egypt. It can happen. Hail in Egypt. It can happen. Pestilence in Egypt. It can happen. These things happen on occasion. So if hail comes, if locust comes, it's not a miracle per se, but it can be considered a miracle if some conditions are present. If a prophet comes and says, there will be a plague of hail at this moment, at 4.22 p.m. and 31 and a quarter seconds. And it happened exactly at the time that was foretold. It's a miracle. Not that the concept of hail is a miracle, but that the timing, the precision of the timing was foretold by the prophet. That's the miracle. Number one. Number two, if there is something which is not miraculous per se, but the amount of it, the intensity of it, the volume of it is unprecedented. Like it says in Egypt about the the plague of locust, there never was once such an unprecedented wave of locust. There never will be such an unprecedented wave of locust. Something like that. Well, that's a miracle. Number three, when there are conditions that are cause and effect that happen all the time, whenever the Jewish people repudiate Torah, they will suffer. That, even though suffering, human suffering is quite common, but when it's linked to a cause and an effect, and it happens all the time, whenever this cause is present, that effect ensues. That is a third example of when something which is on its own, not necessarily miraculous, but when those conditions are present, it can be viewed as miraculous. And then he tells us that miracles that supersede nature, they don't last. Because if they would last, it would not be considered a miracle. Had the staff forever remained a serpent, well, then people would think that it actually was always a serpent. Had the ground stayed open when it swallowed Korach and his co-conspirators, well, they would have said it's natural. Had the water stayed split, everyone would have considered that to be natural. So a supernatural miracle must happen and then stop happening. Okay. He ends off his work by kind of apologizing. He apologizes to the sages. He's like, the sages may read what I wrote and say, wow, Ramam, you've been so repetitive. You're elaborating so much. He says that, listen, sages, you just give them a hint. You tell them one thing, one line, one word, that's enough for them. But I want to make sure that everyone understands me, even the non-sages, even the fools. And for them, you have to really elaborate and be even repetitive and really clarify to just make sure there's no misunderstanding. 
Thus concludes Ramam. Again, this is a it's a masterpiece. What can I say? I, it's so interesting to me. I know it's it's a little bit more in the weeds than what we typically do, and I don't know how exciting it is for you to listen to this. But I thought, for, first of all, I thought it's appropriate for us to cover it because if we're going to do this, we have to do it properly. And part of doing it to something properly is to read the sources and to go through the sources. This is a primary source because it's Ramam himself talking about resurrection. I think some of the ideas are things that we're going to see again, the idea of, of the whether there's a body in Omba or not, the idea of, of resurrection being a, a miracle, and that's why it is so unique, and that's why it's so important to have it as a principle. The idea of understanding all the verses in their proper context. I think it's interesting. I think it's fascinating. I think it's important. If you don't find it to be as interesting, I understand that. That's okay. But I feel like as part of our mandate here to understand and to study to the best of our abilities, these 13 principles, it would be fitting to go through this. I did see that this was translated recently by Arstroll into English. I did not have access to the English translation, so I don't know. Um, if you're interested in reading it, they, the Arstroll recently, just in the last month or two, they published the extra writings of the Rambam, like the letters and all the various other writings of the Rambam into English. I'm sure they did a great job on that. So if you want to read this yourself, you can read this yourself. But you definitely got the gist of the matter over here. Rambam is dispelling any notion that resurrection is not true. He gives us the basic definition of resurrection, the unification of body and soul before Olamaba. He explains why people made their mistake. He explains why he was so brief and succinct in writing it, and now he's fixing it, clarifying the record. Thus concludes Rambam's epistle on resurrection. I think it's a very important element of our discussions and we will once, I assume, we will reference it in the future as well. Uh, of course, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to continuing the study of these 13 principles of faith with y'all. And I'm looking forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.